0: Hi, it's John. And Liz. From Arcane Discoveries, you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore. The tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The last chapter begins with the party inside Mirpool's Church of Sidal, where Bazu hopes to retrieve the Silverthorn. The Silverthorn is a holy relic, being the sword of the paladin and tyrant slayer, Aylward. Before he and his company are allowed to enter the lower levels of the church, Bazu and the others must first pass the scrutiny of the elder cleric, who prays to determine if any of their number have evil in their hearts. Little do any of them know, but Bazu is carrying Night Mother's charm, which inhibits the use of divine magic. The elder cleric is perturbed by the impotency of his prayer, but does not suspect foul play, so he allows Bazu and his party to pass. There is something else the party is unaware of, As they retrieve the relic, a countdown clock is already ticking away. It has been since before dawn, when Romola, disguised as Catsbane, planted a magical suggestion in Bazu's mind. If the spell doesn't wear off before they get back to the inn, the cleric and the sword might disappear forever. But luck is on their side, and the spell does wear off before the party returns. Once Bazu is free from the suggestion spell, he confesses his secret to the entire party, and while nobody understands what is going on, They do make a quick plan to confront and hopefully catch Catsbane's doppelganger. In episode 38, I decided that Romola cast the spell of Suggestion at exactly 4am. I also hacked the rules and extended the spell duration to an even 8 hours. Since Bazu failed his saving throw, he would be under the influence of the Suggestion until noon. I then had to calculate how long it would take the party to get up, eat breakfast, get ready, go to the church retrieve the sword, and get back. They would neither hurry nor tarry, so I decided to roll for it to take either 2, 3, or 4 hours. This decision meant that there was a 2 in 3 chance that the spell would still be in effect when they returned. Only if I rolled a 5 or a 6 on a d6 would it wear off before they got back. Of course, as you've heard, the spell did expire. I rolled a 5, so it was a very close thing. Bazu only returned to his senses within a few minutes of their return. I think that Yellowfly, though confused by the situation, somehow appreciates that there's an opportunity here to turn the tables on whoever is trying to hinder them. He hasn't had much time to prepare a plan, so what he's come up with is pretty simple. He first sends Dawn away to keep her safe, then he tells Jace to wait in his room for a signal. He goes with Catsbane and Bazoo up to Bazu's room to wait for the imposter to reveal himself. As for Sean she gets a special job, which I'll leave hidden behind the DM screen for the time being. Chapter 40, Part 1, Day 116, Early Afternoon, Party Status, Yellowfly, 30 out of 30 hit points, Shawnee 19 of 19, Chase, 26 of 26, Catsbane, 12 of 12, Spells Available, Catsbane has Memorized, Magic Missile, Read Languages, and mirror image. The two Catsbanes regarded each other stupidly for a few moments, one in disbelief, the other in surprise. If the situation was not disturbing enough, things got even more bizarre when the face of the hallway catsbane, impossibly, began to droop and run like candle wax held near a flame. The cheeks sagged, the tip of the nose turned into liquid flesh and then started to run like honey. One eye rolled up in its socket while the other remained fixed on the real Cat's Bane's face. Then, horribly, a smile spread across the now-grotesque features, and, in an oddly familiar voice, it exclaimed,
1: Look who it is! <laughs>
0: the laugh that followed accompanied a new change in the horribly dripping visage. The skin bubbled, undulated, and then it resolved into the face of the woman Shawnee had captured at the safe house in Rull weeks before.
1: How nice to see you all again.
0: While the stunned party members tried to make sense of what they were seeing, the illusionist lifted her hands with the first words of a spell already forming on her lips. Romola is intelligent enough to know that the jig is up. She may be many things, but more than anything, she's a survivor. She knows how to improvise, and she can think on her feet, which is good for her, because she'll need to make a snap decision. If she wants to get out of the mess, she now finds herself in. Essentially, her choices are three. Run for the front door, run for the back door, or stay to fight or talk her way out. Seeing three enemies in front of her, I don't think she'll try to fight. A parlay is equally unlikely. She has already proven her untrustworthiness to these people. Twice. Hmm. What would she do? I'm going to roll for it. On a d10, a 1 or a 2 means she stays put. On a 3 to 6, she dashes for the front door. On a 7 to 10, she'll make for the back exit. Here's the roll a 5. Front door, it is. You know, I don't think we need to initiate combat just yet, but an initiative roll is required. Romola is going to try to cast a spell before she runs for it, and if she loses initiative, Catsbane might be able to disrupt it. A surprise roll here makes sense, too. I mean, both sides have reason to be caught off guard, and for different reasons. We'll start with that, then. On a D6, a 1 or 2 indicates surprise. For Romola. A 1? Oh, alright, this might change things. But first, I'll roll for the party. <laughs> another 1. Oh, this is one of those situations where you know the dice gods are watching carefully. How absolutely appropriate are these rolls? both sides would look at each other in stunned stupidity for a few moments before either had the wherewithal to act. Looking back, I'd even written that very thing into the narrative. That wasn't one of those play-out-of-sequence moments I've talked about in the past, either. Anyway, we aren't done with this D6 just yet, because we need a couple of initiative roles, too. For Romola. A three. The party. A four. Wow, look at that. Okay, when Catsbane answered the door, it makes sense to me that he would have been hiding a dagger behind his back. So, when he sees the strange woman in front of him begin to cast a spell, I think he'll try to stab her. And that means that, after all, we are. Entering Combat Romola's armor class is only 11. With such a poor AC, one might think she'd be trying to cast the spell. Blur, but she isn't. She can't afford to mess around, so she's using her best remaining spell, Paralization. However, Catsbane has the chance to disrupt the casting. He has a strength penalty that gives him minus one to hit, so he'll need to roll a 12 or better to strike her with his dagger. The roll. Oh, for crying out loud, I got a one. I think this means that Catsbane didn't even manage to get the dagger out in front of him. Looking into his own face especially when it started to melt away, must have been such a shock that his hand went slack and the dagger gripped in it simply fell uselessly onto the floor behind him. This means that Romola will get her spell off. What's more, because of that fumble, Caspian loses his turn in round two and he's effectively blocking the doorway. Time to look up the paralyzation spell and find out how it works. Okay, I see it can affect multiple targets. Romola, as a sixth level caster, can catch up to 12 hit dice of enemies. We start with the lowest level in the targeted group as they are first affected. That honor goes to Bazu, who has three hit dice. Catsbane has four, and Fly has five. Altogether, that's an even dozen and just enough to get them all. That's bad. Now the only thing standing between the PCs and a major crisis is a handful of D20s as they attempt to make their saving throws. Looking up the target number does not fill me with confidence either. Bazu and Catsbane both need a 15, while Yellowfly will need to get a 14 or better. One good thing is that, oddly, all three of these characters have a Wisdom bonus and will get a plus one to their rolls. Still, things I would say are not looking good. Well, let's see what happens. Maybe I should get a new d20 for these rolls. That last one wasn't very lucky. Okay, got one. Here's the roll for Bazu. A 14 on the die. Plus one means he just makes the save. His body starts to feel like it weighs hundreds of pounds, and he begins to sink to the floor when he realizes what's happening, and wills himself free of the enchantment. Yellowfly, right beside him, needs a 13 on the die, given his bonus. His roll. An 18? Wow. I wasn't expecting either of them to save, let alone both. Yellowfly has a different experience. He feels his flesh stiffen, and then it begins to turn to stone. He even sees his skin starting to turn gray. Then he remembers that he cannot trust his senses around this woman. And, upon that realization, the spell loses its power over him, and he is free to move again. Can I get a hat trick? Catsbane will already lose his next turn, but will he be paralyzed as well? A 14 on the die is required to save. Rolling. Huh, a 19. What are the chances of that? All three make their save, and Romola has completely wasted her best spell. As round two begins, Yellowfly yells out for Jace to open his door. Jace, now! With Jace in the picture, the scene becomes even more complicated, and we have not yet accounted for Sean who is standing at the end of the hall near the back stairs, made completely invisible by Catsbane's magic. This trick worked for the PCs before, back at the wind of the cliffs, and they're hoping it will work again. I determined earlier that Romola would run for the front door, but that doesn't make sense anymore. She knows the occupants of Bazu's room were unaffected by her spell. She sees Jace's door opening to her left as Yellowfly calls out. The way to the right, to the rear stairs and back exit, appears empty. It's a no brainer that she would run in that direction. But before she can do that, it is round two Initiative Romola. A four, the party. A one. Laughing, Romola shoves Catsbane back into the room, turns on her heel, and flees down the hall towards the rear staircase with such speed that her cloak billows out behind her like a sail. Meanwhile, Jace, who is now in the hall, dashes after her in pursuit, while Yellowfly struggles to get past Catsbane. Get out of the way, Catsbane! Bazu just stands there, hyperventilating. He's never seen action like this before, and he's terrified. Just as Romola reaches the back stairs and turns the corner, Shawnee appears out of thin air right behind her. She's holding her short sword upside down and has it raised above her head, two-handed. When her enemy passes by, she slams it down as hard as she can, hoping to push the tip straight through the strange woman's back. (gasps) Thieves, when attacking an enemy who's not aware of their presence from behind, get a plus four to hit and do double damage if they do hit. As a fifth-level thief, Shawnee already gets a plus-two bonus, so in total, she'll have plus-six, and will only need a five or better on a d20. Come on, Shawnee, don't let her get away. A nine on the die. Not a great roll, but it is good enough. Shawnee brings her weapon down as hard as she can, and does. Five times two is ten points of damage. (gasps) wow. With 23 maximum hit points, Romola is a very tough customer. However, I think this number being so high must mean that she's not only stabbed, but falls face first down the flight of stairs. Now she's down to just 13 hit points, and has Shanae and Jay's right behind her, hoping to finish the job. Round 3. Initiative. Romola. A 2. The party. A 3. Luckily for Romola, the staircase was of the switchback variety, and she only tumbled down a distance of about six feet before crashing into the landing wall. Unfortunately, that gave Shawnee and Jace time to catch up. With the stairwell being so narrow, only Shawnee will be able to attack. She needs a nine or better to hit with her short sword. The blade is already greased with Romola's blood. Will she hit her a second time? Let's find out. A 17 is a hit, and the damage? A single point. Romola is deceptively nimble for her shape and age. She hops to her feet like an Acrobat and bolts down the stairs. Combat is suspended now as we enter the pursuit mechanic. I like the one I've been using, so I'll stick with that. It's basically a roll-off contest where each party needs three successes to win, but every round a modifier will be added to keep the narrative interesting and up-tempo. Here we go. Pursuit. Round 1 romola a six the party a three romola is fortunate to find the back door of the turning bowl unlocked she careens through it and out into the backyard where the snow has really started to come down and falls in thick flurries wisely she closes her eyes as she exits so she is not blinded by the sun's glare on the snow shawnee and jace right behind her do not have such forethought and lose their momentum when they throw the door open and for a few seconds are dazzled by the brightness outside. Romola will get a plus one to her next roll. Round two, Romola, a three plus one is four. The party, a six. What Romola does not know is that Catsbane is right above her at the window in Bazu's room. He sends a magic missile streaking towards her. Magic missiles always strike unerringly, so there's no need to roll to hit. The arcane blast does four points of damage, bringing Romola down to eight hit points and causing her to stumble. Now both sides have a plus one to their rolls and each has one success. It is round three, Romola. A five plus one is six, the party. A three plus one is four. Stabbed and wounded by Catsbane's magic missile, Romola still manages to pick herself up and race to the back of the yard. A wooden fence blocks her path, but she heads straight for it. She knows this town like the back of her hand, so she is aware that Dawn keeps a cord of firewood stacked against this fence. It's buried under the snow, but it's there. She leaps atop it and then vaults over the fence, breaking line of sight. She'll get a plus two on her next roll, as Shawnee and Jace lose precious seconds imitating her move and going over the fence after her, one at a time. Romola now has two successes, and she only needs one more to get away. Round 4. Romola. A 6 plus 2 is 8. There's no need to roll for the PCs. They cannot beat or even match an 8. I remember in the last episode, I rolled for weather. I honestly didn't think the result would get used more than once, but here we are. On that roll, I got a 5 on a d20. At the time, I interpreted the result as indicating heavy snow, but not yet a blizzard. Well, I think that blizzard has come. The flurries of snow are now so thick that by the time Shawnee and Jace clear the backyard fence, there is nothing to see except a fast disappearing set of footprints. They try to follow, but it is fruitless. Their entire plane of vision has been whited out. He comes as a mortal who will never die. For the laws of the gods he will ever defy. A king with no subjects, crown, nor throne. In his wary hand, he carries cards of flesh, fire, and bone. Imprisoned in ice for crimes of the divine. Fishes ever spreading to be broken in time. Like what you heard? Have a listen to the Dice Bar Gaming Podcast, a dark fantasy actual play podcast set in an original world and an original storyline, which spans over now 120 episodes. We utilize the Pathfinder 1E rule set, try to keep the adventure and roleplay serious, but tell widely inappropriate jokes in between. If this is your cup of tea, please give us a listen on the podcaster of your choice. Shawnee and Jace are upset when they rejoin the others, having to report that they have failed to stop their enemy from escaping. Shanae especially takes it hard. This is the second time she's been unsuccessful in a pursuit. Yellowfly sees it differently. He tells Shanae and the others that the encounter was a success. The strange woman had tried to steal from them, and they had prevented it. It's true that they still have a lot of unanswered questions, but they also have, thus far, fulfilled the task assigned to them. Bazu is safe, and so is the sword." Ideally, they would return to Silmoral right away, complete the mission, and collect their payment. But the heavy snow is going to make that impossible, at least for today. Looks like they'll need to stay one more night at the Turning Bowl. That's another three gold pieces, six in total now, for the rooms and another day past. I wonder if the blizzard will have let up by morning, rolling a d20 for the weather on day 117. I got a seven. I think that means the storm is over, but there's a huge amount of accumulated snow. Winds are high, and the trip back will take longer than usual. Even though they leave in the morning, it is night by the time the walls and towers of Silmoral are visible in the distance. Will they be allowed to pass through the south gate at night? With the city on lockdown, it's not a sure thing. Bazu will have some credentials, of course. Hmm. I'll do a reaction check for the gatekeepers. Bazu's status as a cleric will help, and in addition to his credentials, he has a charisma score of 14, which is pretty high. I think a plus three to the roll is appropriate. Here we go. On 2d6, higher is better. Okay, I got a nine on the dice, making a 12. Whoever's manning the gate must be a God-fearing individual, perhaps even a follower of Sadal, for his gruff manner evaporates the moment Bazzi reveals his status as a man of the cloth. Now I'm wondering if anyone at the south gate might be looking for the PCs. Captain Krell, as you might remember, gets intelligence from Suro the Mad he'd be interested in apprehending Yellowfly or any member of his gang. If Suro knows who Yellowfly is, it's fair to say that Krell does too. I'm not sure if the Warlock and the Captain of the Watch are allies precisely, or if they merely have interests that temporarily intersect. Shall we find out? 50-50 sounds about right to me. I'll roll high-low on a d20. High means that Krell and Suro are actually in an alliance. Here's the roll. A 17 looks like they are. Clearly, Sura has offered his services to Krell in exchange for his protection and access. What self-respecting scoundrel wouldn't want to have a powerful friend among the authorities. And at this moment, Krell wields tremendous power. Perhaps we should talk about that, too. We've already established that it was Captain Sindhwan, captain of the Royal Guard, who found the mentally enfeebled to and dealt with the initial fallout. We also determined that he told Krell at least most of what he had discovered. A few days have passed since all this happened, so by now, I think the situation would have developed somewhat. Perhaps it's time to pay Whitestone Castle another visit and see what's going on behind its closed doors. Chapter 40 Part 2 Day 117 Night Captain Krell and Captain Sindwan poured themselves each a generous finger of brandy and clinked to the glasses. The two men were meeting in the royal solar to discuss recent events, as they had every evening since Sindhwan had found the king incapacitated eight days before. Only four days ago, Culfrey would have been in the next room. At first, the two captains had decided to keep the king in his royal bedchambers. The idea was to keep his highness comfortable while also keeping him out of sight it was imperative that nobody see him in his current condition. No one would pay allegiance to a monarch who drooled and cried and soiled himself. However, there was an incident after only the first day that made the two captains realize this arrangement would not work. A chambermaid had entered the king's bedroom over the course of her usual duties and had discovered the king in a state that could only be described as both frightening and highly indecent neither the two guards stationed outside the king's door nor his heavy lock had prevented her entry. This was because the king's quarters contained a number of small secret doors the service staff used in order to remain invisible to their betters, and the chambermaid had used one of these. Upon her discovery, she had shrieked, and the guards had burst into the room to apprehend her. They then reported the incident to Sin Juan, who had in turn told Krell. Krell had handled everything. He ordered all three involved both the chambermaid and the two guards, arrested and thrown into the deepest part of Whitestone Castle's dungeon. It was a shame to lose two good, strong men, but after all, even royal guards could wag their tongues. Sindhwan had found the measures distasteful, but somehow he could sense that Krell was not a man to be crossed, and had acquiesced. The incident with the chambermaid gave Krell an idea, too. The story they were feeding to the public was that the king was ill it was a fiction that would work for a while, but they needed a more permanent solution. It was only a matter of time before they had another such breach, and next time they might not be able to contain it.
1: The palanquin is ready to depart on the morrow," said Krell. I will make the announcement of the king's pilgrimage through the usual channels.
0: Captain Sindhwan nodded and sipped his his brandy. Krell had taken care of everything. He had come up with the notion that Colfrey was to seek deliverance from his illness through piety and penitence. He would accompany a select group of Veselinus clerics on their annual pilgrimage to the site of the Starfall in Camrath, which was a holy site for both of Cameratine's main religions. The palanquin contained a man named Harlech. Harlech was a confederate and impostor loyal to Krell. His job was to play the role of Culfrey, and he could imitate the king's voice with reasonable accuracy. Even the attendant clerics would not know of the deception. They had instructions to leave the monarch to his solitude and private reflections. This plan would, if successful, give the two captains a couple of months to come up with something more permanent to explain the king's absence while remaining in power themselves. They would have more work to do keeping the truth from the public than from the royal family.
1: What news of the queen?
0: Asked Sindwan, absently touching the gold medallion that hung around his neck on a heavy silver chain. It was the same medallion Yellowfly had once tried and failed to frame Bellic
1: with. More than one week since Colfrey lost his wits, and Her Majesty has no idea, nor interest. As usual, she keeps to her ladies-in-waiting, and almost never leaves her part of the palace. We have more to worry about from Naphasia. Should we be concerned about the princess? asked the Elder Captain. I can handle that little brat if she gets nosy,
0: quipped Krell. He shifted in his seat, and Sindwan observed, not for the first time, that the man was still wearing the King's sword on his belt, when he had first noticed and inquired. Krell had replied that he was holding onto it for safekeeping. The king's crown, taken from the king's fool, was currently
1: housed in the royal vault. Has the fool said anything else we might find useful? Not really, lied St. Juan. He says that Carrick limped into the throne room with his head hanging to one side as though... How did he put it? He said as though it were attached by a cord. Yes, yes, we've heard that already,
0: said Krell, with irritation drawn across his features.
1: What else did he say? Only that and that he made the fool exchange his bell cap with the king's crown. That's how I found them, too. The fool was wearing the king's crown. Do you think that's suspicious? Not at all. It sounds like the kind of game Briar would have played even if Carrick had not come. He still maintains that he knows not where the Archmages went. Only through the room and out the doors on the other side.
0: Carrick had not been seen since the incident. The Sindwan and Krell had ordered their men to search every inch of the castle grounds. All they had turned up was the corpse of a murdered girl in the mage's tower. Then we know nothing. Krell threw back his own brandy in a single gulp. It seems so, agreed Sindhwan. Of course, that was not entirely true. Sindhwan had questioned briar patches most severely, and with the right pressure, the fool had given him one piece of information that the captain had decided to keep to himself.
1: At least the king is safe.
0: Sindhwan swallowed hard and nodded, rising from his seat and setting his glass down on the side table. I must go. The elder captain sniffed and walked out of the room, leaving Krell alone. Sindwan was uncomfortable with the solution that the captain of the City Watch had devised. True, it was not safe to keep the king anywhere he might be discovered, but when Krell had proposed to put Culfrey into one of his own oubliettes, it was almost unthinkable. After all, this was their king. He shuddered as he walked down the hall and away from the royal chambers, thinking that somewhere below his feet, the king was in a darkened pit, all alone, and only two men in all of Merith knew where he was. Without realizing why, Sindwan looked back over his shoulder. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help to support it, there are lots of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My thanks to everyone for their support. I'd like to share one of your kind reviews right now. This one is on Apple Podcasts, and it was posted by ToeJumper. ToeJumper writes, A slow-burning epic that hooks you and creates characters listeners can grow with and come to care about. There are no punches pulled, and this podcast provides a refuge among the vast ocean of comedic actual plays out there. Sometimes you just need something with some grit to sink your teeth into. This has really personally inspired me to create art and given me a boost in motivation. Let chaos rule. (laughs) Thanks so much. Now I recognize this Twitter handle, though I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's none other than Roland Diaz. Thanks so much for the review, Roland. I know I'm reading it out long after you posted it. For listeners who don't know, Roland is a stupendously talented artist. I'm such a fan of his work that I named a main character after him in Season 1. You won't need a secret Dakota ring to figure out which one. Hopefully, we'll see some Diaz totem collabs in the near future. And here are some more of my favorite people. Allow me to thank my excellent cast of voice talent. In the role of Romola, welcome back Yasmin from the Dungeons & Dragons Podcast UK. Find her at the Dungeons and Dragons Podcast Teamuk.wordPress.com. Simon J. Williams returns as Captain Krell. Check out his amazing show, Legend of the Bones, for some great solo DD. Finally, Sindwan is voiced by Tim of the excellent Dungeon Dads Podcast. Be sure to check out this show if you haven't already. For listeners who would like to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on Twitter or Tell of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. And there's always email. Tale of the Manticore at gmail.com Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff like art, maps, tables, crafts, and show notes. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore The Story Where Chaos Rolls
1: Hello, I'm Maddie Searle, the host of A Game of One's Own, an actual play podcast for Snazzy Tapir Productions. This show is all about telling stories using solo and two-player role-playing games. Expect an eclectic mix of science fiction tales, fantasy fables and horror stories based on games from the most innovative indie designers. I will be documenting the process of playing each game from start to finish, with a few special guests along the way. I am so excited to explore these games with you. Let's tell some weird stories. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your app of choice so you have access to the next episode as soon as it's released. You can follow the show on Twitter at A Game of One's Own or find us on our website at snazzytapier.com.